Amen. Thank you. Whoa, there we go. Everybody awake? Good, good, good. Give you a little wake-up call there. Praise the Lord for that. We're going to Esther chapter 7, if you would. Esther chapter 7. How many of you enjoyed the Esther series so far? We wrap it up today, and so... Uh, if you haven't, if you've missed some of them, I encourage you to go back and, and, and you can listen to them online as well. Uh, well, the children dismissed at this time uh, to Children's Church, so we appreciate that they have the ability there. Esther chapter 7. All right, what a exodus of young people. Amen. That's a blessing, isn't it? All right. Esther chapter 1, 7, then we're also going to read some verses out of chapter 9. A reporter was interviewing a man on his 100th birthday and uh, try asking him several questions. One of the questions he asked, he said, what are you the most proud of? 100 years old, what are you the most proud of right now? And the man thought about it for a minute and he said, well, I don't have a single enemy in the whole world. The reporter says, wow, 100 years old. You don't have a single enemy in the world. And the guy says, yep, I've outlived every last one of them. Uh, however, we all have enemies, don't we? And today I want to talk to you about getting rest from our enemies. We're looking at the book of Esther, and just to review a little bit, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, we saw the Jews living in dispersion in the Persian Empire. And uh, Queen Vashti had upset King Ahasuerus, and so uh, he basically fired his wife, banished her, and then held wife tryouts for a year until he chose Esther, who was a young Jewish girl, but she kept that Jewish identity hidden. And in the first message that we preached, we pondered the question, in the time of spiritual and moral darkness, can God still work in the midst of his people? And of course, the answer is, a resounding yes. And then we looked at the fact that Esther lived in a time like this. We face many of the same things that Esther and Mordecai and her people faced in her day. We still live in times like this. Uncertainty, turbulence, crooked leadership, an unsure future. And yet, if we as God's people, instead of complaining about our situation... Uh, and in the midst of our darkness could just turn on the light, as Jesus Christ said, uh, we could make an impact for him. So Mordecai asked Esther the question, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And then I, we asked the question also, Who knows but that God has us here for such a time as this? The choice is clear. We can complain, we can whine about our circumstances, or we can determine to impact the world for Christ despite living in times like this. Last week, we looked at the culprit that really destroyed Haman. Pride. He was so full of it. In essence, the pride that consumed Haman was because of a deep desire that we all have. We all want someone that we think the world of to think the world of us. We want to be admired and we want to have our value and our worth. We really invest that in what somebody that we uh, value thinks about us. And so we concluded that in all his scheming, uh, that Haman was trying to get the respect and the position, in all that scheming, he did not ask for the wrong thing. He simply did what so many of us do. We try to find our value and our worth. Haman did not ask for the wrong thing. Haman went to the wrong place. Haman went to the wrong king. 
There's a better king, one who came to earth and stripped himself of his glory uh, that, and he, that he died for you in the process. To know that Jesus Christ died for you humbles you. To know that he willingly died for you answers all that need for human approval that we so desperately seek. That's what we talked about last week, and I encourage you to, uh, if you haven't had a chance to hear that, to download that and listen to it. So next part of the story we get to here, Haman has uh, has has had to honor Mordecai. We kind of talked about that last week. Haman busted in, and he wants to kill Mordecai, and the king wants to honor Mordecai. And so the king asked, what do we do to the one that we want to honor? And Haman, thinking it was himself, uh, came up with a pretty elaborate scheme, and then the king said, good, you do that for Mordecai. Whew, he had to go out and, and uh, just swallow the bile that was coming up and honor his worst enemy. Uh, he was so disgusted. He went home a defeated mess. He unloaded on his wife and his friends on the second pity party that he held for himself there at his home. And while they were yet talking, the king's men came to hustle him to the banquet he had been invited to. And that's where we pick up the story, verse number 1, chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people." to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy of this is this wicked Haman. And then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from a banquet of wine in his wrath, went to the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where Esther was. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in this house? The word went out of the king's mouth, and they covered Haman's face. That essentially means he was doomed. And Harbona one of the chamberlains said to the king, Behold also the gallows fifty feet cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, which he spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereupon. All right, go to verse or chapter number 9, one page over. We'll look at verse number 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the providences of the king Azuharis, both nigh and far to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at this story, applying it to our life. I pray you'd help us find rest from our enemies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are at the banquet and Esther finally drops the bomb that uh, she had been waiting to tell the king. She's a Jew, and someone is trying to not only kill her people, but her as well. The king is shocked. Who is this man? How would he be able to pull this off? The king was not or didn't seem to be amazed to learn that she is Jewish. 
What did amaze him was that such a wicked man might be in his employ. And the king was even more shocked to find out who this man was. Haman. How blind this king was to the true nature of the people around him. He kept the godly and wise Mordecai outside the gate, but he kept wicked Haman inside his, his inner circle who basically had the run of the place. Still today, would you agree along with me that many times the wrong people are in charge even today? I want to focus though on the phrase that we find in chapter 9 verse 22 here, in the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies. So the conclusion of all that Esther did, and we'll fill in the blanks in a little bit here, but she gained rest from her animal, her enemies. In other words, the Israelites experienced rest from their enemies. They had been through so much. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and then when they finally were delivered from there on their wilderness route, they were attacked over and over. And even when they got to the promised land of Canaan, again they were attacked over and over by their enemies. The great desire in their heart was to be at rest from their enemies. In fact, God even promised that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, when you get over Jordan, He said, and dwell in the land which the Lord your God hath given you, that which He giveth you, and, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, living in a world such as we do, we're going to have enemies. There are human conflicts, obviously. There are uh, people misuse you, they lie to you, they hurt you, they ignore you, they attack you. And then there are also spiritual uh, enemies, sin, temptation, addictions, depression, pride, and we could go on down the list. Wouldn't rest from our enemies be a great thing? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could be delivered from the enemies that plague us? And I'm not only talking about people. I'm talking about the things that hold us back. Wouldn't rest be great? That's what God promised Israel would be the outcome of His salvation for them. And I want to talk today about us, how we get rest from our enemies. Let's look at how Esther got rest. You had this evil Haman who got King Ahasuerus to make a terrible degree, decree. He, he had come to the king and said, there's traitors mixed along your, uh, your kingdom here, and, and I have rooted them out. And if you'll give me the authority, I'll go and have all of them killed. I'll take their wealth, and I'll bring it into the king's treasury. So the king foolishly gave Haman his ring of authority, and Haman sent out the decree. In one year, uh, all the neighbors of the Jews would basically have open hunting ground for Jews. They would be able to kill them and take all of their wealth in plunder. So Queen Esther had hidden her Jewish identity, but she decided she had to do something to save her people. So at great danger to herself, she would go to the king. This was against the law unless you were summoned, but she stood before him. If he put out the scepter, she would be safe. If he did not, she could be killed for it. And thankfully, he did put out the scepter, and she invited him to this banquet to give him this news. Now, she says, I want to have you and Haman to come to a banquet. In ancient times, inviting someone to eat with you in your home had much cultural significance. To invite people into your home, and it, of course, still does somewhat, but to invite people in your home was a way of saying, I want to have a relationship with you. Esther, if you remember, hadn't been called by the king for 30 days, and so in, in having this meal, this banquet, she's basically telling him, I want to reestablish my relationship with you. She was very smart in how she went about it. 
Finally, at the second banquet, the king asks again, Esther, what is your wish? What are you asking for? And she employs here a very brilliant strategy. She does three things. She first establishes a premise when she says, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king. What Esther is doing here is basically reminding him, you chose me as your queen. And so in some ways, your reputation is bound up with my reputation. And so you made me your queen, so I have favor with you. Then secondly, she drops the bomb. Let my life be given me at my petition and the people at my request. I'm about to be destroyed. She's begging the king, please save my life and the life of my people. That's a shocker, especially in light of the premise, because an assault on the queen is an assault on who? The king as well. And so he sees that and recognizes that. Let's break down what she said, verse 4 here of chapter 7. She says, uh, first the deal, we are to be sold. We are sold. This is the deal that Haman made with the king for 10,000 talents of silver to massacre the Jews. Second, the destruction, to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. This statement is taken directly out of Haman's degree to all the provinces that he sent out. The word translated slain in Esther's statement is the same word that was translated kill in Haman's. So Esther is basically quoting from the decree. Third, the damage, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. To mistreat the Jews will hurt the people of the nation that do that to them. Has history not proven that out over and over and over again? And so she's mentioning this to him. Now, here's what's odd to me. The king's not connecting the dots. He's, he's basically hearing the decree read back to him. Either that or he's playing dumb. Do men ever play dumb with their wives? I don't know. But he seems to be either playing dumb or he's not connecting all the dots here, uh, because he's still asking who had done this. And Queen Esther doesn't pull any punches. She says the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Hey, evil needs to be, uh, to, to be named, amen? If it's to be exposed and expunged, it needs to be named. The king gets up in a rage. He needs to think. Uh, because he, now he has a huge problem. Esther shows him that if she's killed because of this decree, it will be a tremendous embarrassment for him. And so he's got a serious problem. He's angry, and he goes off to the flower, out to his garden, to think and to clear his head. Uh, probably like most monarchs in that day, and maybe even today, he's not much blaming himself. He is very angry at Haman, and Haman knows it. That's why Haman does what he does next. Culturally, it's outrageous. Civilly, it's illegal. Uh, no male was supposed to be alone with a member of the king's harem uh, without the king there, and especially not the queen. And so the, as soon as the king left the room, Haman should have skedaddled out there himself, but he didn't do so. He's clearly melting down. He is paralyzed with fear, and he has lost his judgment. So look what he does. Uh, we, we read a minute ago, as his life he knows is hanging by a thread, the Bible says he throws himself on the couch that Esther's reclining on. Now, the Bible uses the word bed. Uh, the original word is mitah. It means couch. This is where they were. It could be labeled a bed, but this wasn't a, a bedroom. It was uh, where they were eating, and in that uh, culture, they would lay on a couch, recline on a couch as they ate, rather than sit in a chair as we do. So there's was where Esther was, and uh, he fell down at the feet of the queen. He's begging for mercy, and he probably even embraced her feet or her knees in doing so. It was the custom in those days. 
When the Shunammite woman's son died, in 2 Kings chapter 4, the Bible says when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. She's begging for help. So there he is holding on to her, probably her feet or her legs, and he's begging to be spared, and the king walks in. <laughs> Not a good scene. Amen? You wouldn't want to be Haman in this point when you're holding on to the king's wife, the queen. And uh, now, of course, one of the king's problems is solved because he sees Haman doing something outrageous and illegal. Haman has basically brought on himself the death penalty. Notice, by the way, how much Haman is hated. <laughs> I think this is funny. There's a guy named uh, Harbona we talked about in the room there. And I, this week I was thinking about it. I kind of built up a whole story about Harbona in my own mind. It's not in the Bible, but I can just picture... Uh, can you imagine how Haman would have been around the palace? We've seen and talked about his utter pride, his complete self-obsession. Haman was the kind of guy that would treat the help bad. Amen? Self-conceited, important people who think they're much better than they should, than they should think about themselves uh, treat people beneath them very badly. Uh, that's why it always bothers me when somebody treats a waitress or a waiter badly. All right, just like there's some kind of servant or an underling, and that's never a good thing. And so here's Harbona, probably had been mistreated by Haman, and so he's he he's off to his side here, and he King um, just 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 throwing this out there for us. Where Haman built some gallows to hang Mordecai that had saved your life. Just throwing that out there. Do whatever you will with it. And the king says, "Yeah, hang him on that." That's a he. No, they weren't defending Haman. They were quick to throw him under the bus. By the way, you live a life to yourself. You live a selfish, self-obsessed life. You're not going to have many friends standing up for you in the end. The king uh, tells him to be hung on the gallows. Haman had made wooden gallows specifically so that Mordecai would hang on wood because according to Deuteronomy 21 in Jewish law, this would be a tremendous curse to Mordecai. And why so high? 75 feet high, this thing. For reference, that's two telephone poles standing on top of each other. One reason, I believe, is history tells us that uh, king's palaces, the windows in king's palaces, could not rise any higher than 50 cubits or 75 feet. And I think Haman so hated Mordecai, he wanted everybody to be able to see him. Even from the highest skyscrapers of that time, you'd be able to look out the window and see his hated enemy Mordecai out there. That's why Harboni could be standing there in the palace looking out the window. Hey, you, you see, if you look out this window right here, there's already a gallows built, king. I don't know if you want to use them, but uh, they're already there and ready. And of course, the king took advantage of it. What an end to a man consumed with himself. Prideful, self-importance to be impaled on a 75-foot tower. In chapter 8, though, we didn't read this, but we still have the problem of the original decree. Remember, we've mentioned several times the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be uh, changed. It could not be undone. So Esther proposes to the king a counter-decree. Uh, they could not stop the attack, so what they did is they basically issued concealed weapon permits to the Jews. Uh, they could now defend themselves. They, the king basically passed legislation that they could have AR-15s with high-capacity magazines, something along that line, amen? Because truly free people are the ones who are free to arm themselves, amen? And so that's what he did. 
And the point is they could defend themselves. They could take uh, the attacker's wealth. He said, this was in the new decree, whoever attacks you, you can defend yourself, you can kill them, and you can plunder them now instead of them plundering you. Esther was hoping that this counter-decree would mean that no one would attack the Jews, but actually many did try to attack them, and there was much bloodshed. Many of the Jews' enemies were killed. However, and this is what I find interesting, even though it was legal, they, the Jews did not plunder. They only defended themselves. They did not uh, take advantage of that decree to plunder their enemies. They abscri- ascribed to the Mr. Miyagi rule of combat. Defense only. Amen? And that's what they did. Praise the Lord for that. Then in our text, in chapter 9, verse 22, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies... Esther has gotten rest from the enemies. Here's the key, though, temporarily. The Jews have often been given, as promised by God, rest from their enemies. Here's the problem. It never lasted. Uh, The rest from the enemies never seemed to stick. Moses gave it to them for a while. Joshua gave them rest from their enemies for a while. David gave them rest. Solomon gave them rest. Others... These are the heroes of the Old Testament. In a sense, they're like Messiah figures. They're saviors for Israel. But they could only bring them rest from their enemies temporarily. Later, the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Daniel, begin to prophesy that someday a Messiah would come and He would bring ultimate rest for our enemies. He would be the one to finally defeat our enemies and give us permanent rest. Daniel chapter 7 talks about that. And that brings us to our second point. How did Jesus give us rest from our enemies? Along comes Jesus Christ who called himself the Son of Man. If you'll read your New Testament, you'll find many who followed him thinking, finally, the day has arrived. We've got our deliverer. We've got somebody who's going to take on Rome. We've got somebody who's going to uh, give us rest from our enemies. That's why you have in Luke 19 a triumphal entry we talk about where they rave, wave palm branches and they hollered and shouted and screamed, glory, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the highest. And yet a week later they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Why the quick change? Because he did not fulfill their expectations of building an earthly kingdom. They wanted him to take on Rome. They wanted him to give them rest from their enemies. In Luke chapter 9, And there was a village of the Samaritans that rejected Jesus. They were evidently a little rude about it. So James and John, and doesn't say eagerly, but when I read it, I just it has the. It it seems that they very eagerly said to Jesus, "Hey Jesus, you remember Elijah? Elijah, remember when Elijah called down fire from heaven and his fire came down and destroyed what he uh, prayed about? There was a sacrifice at that time." He said, remember Elisha? Elisha was just taking a stroll one day, going to his next meeting, and all of a sudden these children came out and they made fun of him and they laughed at him. They made fun of his bald head. That's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, why I never do it, because she bears came out and took, out, took these kids out. Remember when that happened, Jesus? You know what? And then this is what they asked. They said, "Will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Jesus, can we... You know, we want to be released from our enemies. We want rest from our enemies. Can we start with them? Can we start with them? Can we call fire down on them? Jesus rebukes them. And the more he opens his mouth, the more the disciples don't get it. Love your enemies. Forgive them that misuse you. If they demand a mile, go for two. 
forgive 70 times 7 is a hard thing for them. Personally, I believe this drove Judas to do what he did. Because he expected Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. Maybe, and this is just speculation on our part, but I've, all, I've long thought that he had Jesus arrested thinking that would force Jesus' hand and finally he would take on the enemy. When that didn't happen, he realized what he did, that, and he went out and killed himself. But uh, they wanted Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. They did not get what they expected. Remember on the last evening in Jesus' life, if you want one more example, the enemies of Jesus came and to arrest him and uh, maybe the disciples thought, finally the time has come. We're going to take on Rome. We're going to be freed. We're going to have rest from our enemies. And he, Remember Peter? He drew, drew his sword and chopped off an ear. Okay, he aimed for the neck. I'm convinced. Who, who chops off an ear? That's not going to do anything to stop a soldier. I believe he aimed for the neck and missed. Just personal interpretation here. But uh, he, he, he slashed a sword, dropped off and chopped off an ear. Jesus, that was his last miracle. Uh, before he rose from the dead, healed that ear. Uh, and this is what he told Peter. They that take the sword shall perish with the, with the sword. And he lets himself be arrested. He goes with the soldiers. He dies, all the while forgiving his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, have you ever heard the claims... The Old Testament is the bloodthirsty God, the one who brings wrath and fire down on his enemies, always smiting things. And the New Testament Jesus is all about love and acceptance and peace. And uh, he is, he is uh, just accepting everybody. Now, those, those, there's some truth to those, but that's not necessarily true in the face of it. What we have in Jesus Christ Dying and suffering on the cross, forgiving his enemies, is the ultimate warfare on evil. It brings ultimate rest from our enemies. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, because uh, for it is written, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. Did Jesus believe in the judgment of God? Absolutely. Nobody talked more about hell in the Bible than Jesus Christ did. He believed in judgment. Absolutely. But you, by the way, you have to believe in judgment if you're a loving person, which Jesus was. What Jesus reveals here is that God is not so concerned about destroying this enemy or that enemy. What he is concerned about is destroying enmity, different than enemy. It's not about siding with this nation or that nation. Rather, he wants to destroy the cancer that's eating away at the world that he created and loves. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told about what Jesus did for us on the cross. It goes through, Paul talks about how we were dead and he quickened us. He says we became aliens, or we were aliens and strangers and he reconciled us and we were far off and he brought us near. And then in verse 15 he concludes, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That's what he was really after. Christ on the cross slew the enmity that was talked about all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent tricked Adam and Eve into sinning and Jesus or the God told the serpent now that I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And that was there until the moment that Jesus Christ defeated it. This is victory indeed. He defeated Satan and the sin that destroys us. Listen, if Jesus would have picked up a sword, he'd have had a tremendous following 
He might have gotten temporary rest from their enemy, but when He died on the cross for our sins, mine and yours, He defeated sin and death and hell. And in so doing, uh, He was destroying sin and death itself. That is true victory. That is true freedom from our enemies. You see, if somebody does you wrong, if somebody hurts you, you might feel a right to hurt that person. That's kind of how we approach it sometimes. If somebody robs you of your reputation, you feel pretty much free to go uh, ruin his reputation. In other words, the default mode of the human heart is to respond to evil with evil. That's our default mode. That's what we automatically and naturally go for. If you whack your enemy hard enough, you get rest, don't you? Because they're out of your life. You won. But you only whacked your enemy. You did nothing for enmity. And enemy, going after the enemy, only gives us temporary relief, temporary rest. We have to get rid of the enmity. Uh, and what you've done, you've made the enemy worse. Because when you fight evil with evil, my friend, you don't beat evil. In fact, evil wins in two ways. Number one, when you fight evil with evil, you become worse yourself. You become colder. You become harder. If someone does evil to you, you become self-righteous and full of your own goodness. It helps to build yourself up by putting up somebody else down. That evil then is spreading to you. Secondly, when you revenge an enemy, you make him more of an enemy. Maybe they're defeated. And maybe like they did for Israel over and over again, they just come back stronger than they ever were before. You end up in circular living. Until Jesus Christ came along, all the Old Testament heroes only gave Israel temporary rest from their enemies because they whacked the enemies but not the enmity. The best way to defeat evil is with good. That's what Jesus said. Oh, goes against our grain, doesn't it? Who wants to be good to someone who's evil to us? That's how to defeat it, though. The cross of Jesus Christ changes everything about the warfare against evil. No, not, now the way that we handle our enemies is by loving them and forgiving them. We overcome evil with good. We respond to evil forces with the violence of grace. How about that phrase? The violence of grace. If somebody does evil to you, you don't just lay down and take it. You respond with grace. And can I tell you, grace is traumatic. Grace is powerful. Grace destroys enmity. Not the enemy so much, but enmity. There is nothing more formidable than grace. When you give somebody grace and forgive them, you now have the prospect of turning that enemy into a friend. That's the only way to really destroy an enemy. If you do it by evil with evil, it only makes you worse and him worse or her. But you show grace. That's the way to destroy it. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That brings us to our final point, how to get rest from our, how can we have rest from our enemies? If you understand the gospel, you get rest from your enemies in two different ways. Uh, pay close attention to this. This is so good. Do you believe that Jesus Christ had to die for you? Ruminate on that just for a second. Did Jesus Christ have to die for you? In other words, you're that bad. You're that wicked. You could not have gotten to heaven by yourself. You could not do enough good works. You realize you are tainted by sin, for there is none good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For even our righteousness are as filthy rags to the Lord. 
we understand he had to die for us. There, uh, th- that's a very humbling fact. And that protects you against what evil does to keep itself going in the world. Because when somebody does wrong to you, your natural response is to get self-righteous. But the gospel says you're no better. You're no better. Jesus Christ had to die for you. You're a sinner saved by grace. In that way, evil cannot get a foothold in your life because the first way that your enemies can no longer destroy you is they can't make you hate them. They can't perpetuate the evil if we continue to respond to evil with good. It ends it. If you hate your enemies, then you don't realize that you're a sinner saved by grace just like they are or they should be. You haven't been humbled by the gospel. As a result, you, aren't, you don't have rest from your enemies. Your enemies can destroy your life, and in so doing, they can control you. They can control your emotions. They can push those buttons and use anger to manipulate you. You don't have a rest from your enemies if you allow that to happen. The gospel humbles me out of my self-righteousness so that I can resist what the enemy does. Secondly, and this is so important too, we saw a little bit of this last week, the gospel values you. It affirms you. It says that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, thought you were worth dying for. You were worth suffering for. He loved you that much. Now because He died for you, all your sins can be forgiven. The Bible says there is therefore no condemnation if you come to Christ. Uh, no, the, uh, the, the, you are guaranteed eternal life. Can't you see how that gives you rest from your enemies? It helps you identify your value who you are. See, if you're, if you're self-worth, if you look at your own self-worth and it's just wrapped up in your net worth, enemies can take your net worth. They can destroy that. But if you understand your real treasure is in heaven and your value is His love for you, now your enemy can't touch you. It can't harm you. What if your value is found in reputation of, uh, with others? Enemies can touch that. Somebody could ruin your reputation. Now they've destroyed you. But what if you believe the gospel? What if you believe only in the approval of God? What if you really recognize in your life that there's only two eyes in the entire universe whose opinion of you counts anything? That gives you rest from your enemies, doesn't it? No longer does it matter what somebody else says. They can't touch you. I'm simply saying today, friends, enemies don't have a weapon that can touch me. You can't touch my real treasures. You can't touch my real reputation. You can't touch my real life. You can't. You have rest from your enemies. Now you can go out into a world and impact that world for Jesus Christ. You can offer them what you have received from Jesus Christ as we forgive those who harm us, as we love the undeserving, as we repay evil with good, as we employ the violence of grace. We might just turn our enemies into friends. In so doing, we destroy the enmity. May I remind you of a verse? It's our memory verse for today in the bulletin. For we wrestle, this is Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not with flesh and blood. That's enemies. We don't. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. That's enemies. We don't. But against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's enmity. Can I remind you today, friends, our battle is never against people. Oh, but Christians are good at that, aren't they? We fight others. We get on arguments. We stop going to church. I can't tell you how many people 
I've talked to that won't come to church. Oh, I'll never go to church again in my life. Back in 1925, I got upset. Somebody upset me in, in church and I'll never go back again in my life. I hear that story all the time uh, because people fight with people. But the Bible says people are not our enemy. That is not who we fight against. Jesus understood that. The disciples didn't. Do you want rest for your enemies? It's in the gospel. Now, I began this series the same way I'm going to end it. When I say that Jesus, uh, that when you read the book of Esther, God is not mentioned in that book. The only book in the entire Bible, Esther, that God is not only named, not named, there's no religious reference at all in the book of Esther. There's no mention of faith. There's no mention of the Word of God. There's no mention of God at all. There's no uh, reference to the Bible, anything. And yet, have we not seen his involvement in the human affairs? There's a tremendous, this is a tremendous comfort to us. We can be assured that despite our circumstances, God is at work. I have here today a list of things uh, I thought I would just use to illustrate this. Different ingredients here. We have flour, sugar, butter, some vanilla, some oil, raw egg. Uh, none of us would really want to get up and start eating this individual. Have you ever sat down with a spoon and ate some flour? It, it, it's not any good. Or just salt or just sugar or having a nice drink of vanilla. I love vanilla, but not straight. Amen? These are ingredients. But what all these ingredients do is that they create, in the end, a masterpiece. I got up early this morning to bake these cinnamon rolls for this illustration. Why are you laughing? All right. Uh, this, this here, that's the masterpiece. This is the ingredients. Now, here's the problem. That as God works in our lives... We don't like the ingredients. Ingredients are no good. Man, we're talking troubles, trials, difficulties, conflicts. We're talking all these different things, and they're no good. We don't like the ingredients. But God is behind the scenes putting together a masterpiece if we just let him. You tell me God's not found in Esther? God is all over the book of Esther, but he's in the ingredients. See, can I tell you, this is the impact. This is the process. We don't like the process of having an impact sometimes. We don't like the trouble. We don't like the conflict. We don't like the things we have to go through to get to the end result. But can I encourage you today, friends, just like in the book of Esther, God was behind the scenes in all these things. We talked about these God moments, these sanctified, uh, these... Uh, uh, these coincidences that we see throughout the book of Esther. They weren't coincidences at all. They were God working. The same thing happens in your life. But it won't be pleasant stuff. Hearing the news, you're all going to be murdered. Not only you, but you're, all your people are going to be murdered. That's not pleasant. That's nasty, eating flour. All right, to, to hear that, uh, hey, not only are you going to, you don't have a year to live anymore, Mordecai. Tomorrow, I'm going to put you up on a tall tower and I'm going to impale you to your death. That's horrible. That's awful. Eating salt. And all these things that they added, all these bad things, they were B 
being built into a masterpiece where God was glorified, the Jewish people were saved, and Esther and her people got rest from their enemies. Didn't happen in a pleasant way, though, did it? It was bad. It was unpleasant. Tasted bad while they were getting it. But God worked it out. Friends, God is doing the same thing in your life. He wants to anyway. All that we need to do is we need to just accept the ingredients sometimes. I don't like them. They're not pleasant. But that's what the book of Esther is all about. Don't, don't, uh, don't despise the process. Because if you're going to make an impact, you'll not resent the ingredients in your life. You'll let those things come. Do your best despite them. Be faithful through them. Don't let them discourage you and make you quit for God. You just keep on going. Keep on being faithful. Stay going to church. Stay in your Bible. Stay in prayer with God. And you keep on doing what you're supposed to be doing. And one day you're going to wake up and you're going to say, What a coincidence! God did something big. You've got to be faithful like Mordecai was. Esther was. And then we can see him work. You might think, like Esther and Mordecai could, as we read the book of Esther, that God's a thousand miles away, but he wasn't. He was right there. You know, was at work. He's with you too, friend, and he'll do a work in your life, working in the details. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Oh, there may be many in here today that are discouraged because they don't see. You can't see God. God's not in this, you might say. That's what they say about the book of Esther, but we know He was all over it. He's all over you too. I don't know how God spoke to your heart today. If you're here today and you don't know that you know that you know if something happened today and that you would, uh, your life would be snuffed out, that you'd be in heaven. If you don't know that, friend, you can know it before you leave. The Bible's very clear. Or if you, dear Christian, have been discouraged because you just don't see God working, may I encourage you today that He's all over your circumstances in your details. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play If God spoke to your heart?